my, my purpose in this is, I, you know, purpose in preaching as long as I do and, and teaching in the way I do or preaching in the way I do, I want there to be proclamation, absolutely. It's got to be there. But I also want my people when they go home and they're studying the Bible themselves to know how to do it. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I am Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Great. Yeah, great, Nick. Thanks. So we're going to be talking about preaching this week, but before we do that, we wanted to briefly acknowledge an ongoing, really tragic situation in the ACNA. There have been credible accusations of sexual misconduct and even rape levied against a man who served in lay ministry in an ACNA church in Illinois in the Diocese of the Upper Midwest. There's an open letter from Bishop Stuart Rutch detailing all this for anybody who's interested in finding it online. But this week, it seems that questions have been raised about whether or not the situation was handled in the best way it could have been. And Bishop Rutch himself wrote that he'd hoped the case would move through the legal system much faster than it has. I think we all just wanted to acknowledge that and that no church structure is above sin, but that so far the ACNA has shown itself to be willing to tackle these things head on and with appropriate transparency. We don't know a lot, but I, for one, am grateful for our provincial leadership and am trusting that justice will be done in this situation. You guys have anything you want to add? No, I think it's, I think this is one of those cases where what the Archbishop said like two or three weeks ago in his speech to the assembly comes into play. You know, you, know, you hear about these things and they are very shocking. And the temptation would be to run to social media and say something, uh, you know, like, like kind of let your emotions go and, and post something on Twitter or social media that you might regret later. And so I've seen some people do that, but I think by and large, people have kind of kept their powder dry. So I think that's good. And we need to wait and see what happens. Yeah, I think we, we um, you know, as you said, Nick, we've seen, you know, the bishops already have addressed um, some instances in the past and they have, um, found you know just outcome and we pray for that to be the same in this case and mercy and forgiveness and you know amen salvation healing yeah yeah well there's no smooth transition from a topic like that to any other topic but it is true that in the broader evangelical world the big news continues to be ed Litton's borrowing of sermons from jd greer and maybe others for all we know we don't really know because ed Litton's church has erased or privatized more than 100 sermons from their archive now yeah Matt he called and- me once but i never called him back uh- <laughs> now, now <laughs> matt and ann did a great That's job a talking about that situation <laughs> on the preventing grace podcast which i recommend everybody go listen to and you can read a bunch about it on the christian blogosphere but interestingly it's bringing up a question for people how does my pastor prepare his sermon now, Ed Litton has a team of men who help him prepare to preach. I myself worked for a brief time as a sermon prep researcher. So we thought we'd take today's podcast to talk about sermons, sermon prep, how we get ready, what we're trying to accomplish in a sermon, and so on. And buckle up, there may well be some disagreement today since Matt is on the record as saying you cannot preach a good sermon in less than 30 minutes And I've preached a 30-minute sermon a grand total of one time in my entire life. So let's go around and talk about how we preach and how we prepare. 
Who wants to go first? First of all, I want to hear uh, sometime in this broadcast or post, whatever you call it. I want to hear the story of your research work Glad um, on, a, on, a, on a sermon team. I'd love to hear it. Um, so I start my process. I start on uh, uh, it's my day off on Monday or Wednesday, depending on the week. Um, but usually on Mondays, no matter what, I'll, I'll take the text for the next Sunday. I'll read it, pray through it, let it sit overnight. And then the next day um, I'll be doing I'll just uh, I'll be I usually write a, uh, a one page kind of summary. This is where I think this is where I think the text is going this is how I think it's going to play out. Then I hit the commentaries, and um, next day I'll listen to two or three sermons in the text if they're available. Like I just preached on Deuteronomy 15; it was hard to find anything on, on that out there. But uh, but just listen to some sermons on the text, um, and then you know copy those verbatim and use those for my <laughs> sermon. Uh, just, <laughs> just kidding. That's well. <laughs> then I'll let it sit because that, that, that is a technique. We, yeah, that is a technique. Wait, wait, just. To clarify, you though you actually do listen to other sermons on the. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I think it's I think it's indispensable because I mean I, I want to hear how other people are applying it, um, how they're how they're diff- dealing with some of the difficulties and, and the debates you might read about in the commentaries, and so uh, then on Thursday I'll write a rough draft, um, then on Friday I'll scale it down and then it sits until Sunday morning at three forty five a.m. Um, when I get up and I spend the next four hours. Uh, getting it down to 3,300 words exactly um, so that I can do it within 40 minutes. So that's my process. Wow. Wow. That's certainly a regular one. Every week. <laughs> um, you want to go, well, Jody? Yeah, mine's not uh, that regimented. Um, although I guess now for what, how long we've been doing this, 15 years or so, I guess it's gotten to be fairly straightforward. I mean, I read the text um, Monday morning or I at least, yeah, I mean, I, I get it in my head. And do a similar, similar to what you're doing, Matt. I don't put a lot down on paper throughout the week, but I do listen to, uh, you know, pull out commentaries if they're necessary, um, or you know, when I have them, um, I pretty much have them. Generally speaking, then listen to sermons or um, try to go back and see what I preached on the text before uh, to make sure I don't just repeat myself verbatim in, in many cases. I actually can put a plug on. I have a one of my favorite lectionary podcasts. It's called Scripture First by the Luther House of Studies. Um, and a guy named Stephen Paulson, who um, was my second reader of my doctoral dissertation and is a good friend, um, is often on the podcast. And while I may not always um, utilize every insight they come up with, I find it's all, almost almost always an angle that I had not considered, uh, which I appreciate um, because it's, you know, and they go through the Greek and they do, um, I mean, they, they hit, it's generally just on the Gospels, but um, I don't always just preach on the Gospel. And then uh, usually Friday, uh, which is my technically my day off, but that's just when I put it down, I get some sort of rough draft together and tinker with it um, on Saturday and then get up early on Sunday morning and put the final um, final pieces. Now, for me, it's not a word count. It's a page count. So if I we are charged within our and we can talk about this, we have about a 17 to 18 minute upper window 
Um, it was a little longer when COVID, uh, you know, had our communion last about four seconds. So that was, we got used to preaching about 20 minutes, 20 to 20 to 24 minutes, which I, I appreciated, but we've now had to scale that back. So that means for me, I go from 14 point double space, eight pages down to six, and that cuts off. The, apparently it's roughly uh, three minutes a page is kind of my, um, uh, what I'm looking at. So, so yeah, if I get, if I print it out and it's more than six pages, then I have to go back and edit it. And if I don't, then I, then I lock it up and, and let it roll. So and I do preach from a manuscript. Um, I don't utilize it uh, slavishly. I mean, people often say, can I have a copy of that? And I, sometimes I say, well, there's very little resemblance to what I preached, to what I actually wrote down. So you have Nicholas, a manuscript, but, um, you don't necessarily use it? Well, well, I have, it's, a, it's sort of a funny or at least illuminating story. I used to preach um, just from an outline. As recently as when I was I working a, with you, right? Well, in the beginning, but I don't know if you were there no, no, it was before I've been doing a manuscript since you were we were working together because mm -hmm. there was one sermon where I just totally blanked and I had said I have no I, mean, I didn't say it out loud, but I have no idea what this bullet point <laughs> means. <laughs> and I and I, you know, I was sort of new at the church and I broke out into a cold sweat and I think I sort of I think I just basically repeated the first point and said, you know, um, and used some for filler words and then got out of there as fast as I could. And I've never forgotten that. And so I got so um, scared that I just now I have. So if you looked at my manuscript, I have sort of big bolded um, sections that that I can come back to if I, if I go off on a tangent in a way that I wasn't expecting, then I can be pulled back in with a, a bolded point as sort of the next step. And so um, I hit all those steps on the way down to the end. And then another technique that Liza made me <laughs> was have, have one ending, not a, not a bunch of different endings and make sure that I, if I have anything written at all, I write the ending yeah. because, you know, to leave someone with a nice, uh, powerful, you know, po uh, statement at the end and don't qualify it and don't, you know, then soften it or anything is, is just a nice way to wrap it up. And so that was something that my loving wife, over years of listening to me um, and then giving me notes upon notes, pages and pages of, of, uh, of notes on my, um, you know, delivery and style and theology. Uh, <laughs> she came back with that. So she's lovingly my best, my best critic. As she says, she it's in her best interest for me to uh, preach well also. So um, I listen to what she has to say. Yeah, well, it sounds like we all sort of start in the same place. I'm just right there with you all early in the week. I will look at the readings. Now, I don't, I still am preaching from the lectionary. So I'm not preaching straight through yeah, a book like, like you are, Matt. So part of looking at the readings involves choosing what reading I'm going to preach from. Um, and then I basically just sort of sit with it as I live my life. I tend not to read that much. And this is also um, something that I'm sure we're going to want to get into more later when we talk about sort of what it is that we're trying to accomplish from the pulpit on a Sunday morning, um, because for better and worse, I'm not trying to come, not, not primarily trying to interpret a text for the congregation. I'm trying to um, proclaim the good news of Christ crucified and risen to them hopefully and obviously from a text, but not, um, I'm thinking of it in my head as something different than a Bible study. It's not that for me. 
And so the amount of time I spend in study is not that high. I spend much more time in not quite, I think illustration is the wrong word, but um, they're sort of thinking of ways to help open up windows for the people in the congregation to understand what is always a counterintuitive thing, that their righteousness is not based on the things that they do, but on what Christ has accomplished for them. So the, the, the sermon work for me is just sort of, as I live my life, I'll actually send myself five or six or seven or eight emails th throughout the week with ideas or sentences or even phrases um, that I think will help illuminate how, I can get from the text to the gospel. And so I don't actually sit down and write anything until usually Thursday or Friday. But by the time I do sit down to actually write, it's pretty much all worked out in my head because again, for better and worse, I, I know where I'm going to end up in every sermon, no matter what, because it's not about learning what it is the text says, although we definitely have lots of opportunities in our church for just expositing text. Um, but in the Sunday sermon, for me, it's all about getting to the point where I can remind people that they're great sinners and that Jesus Christ is their greater savior. And so it generally comes out in terms of the writing process pretty quickly. And I'm um, like you guys, I write out every word. And most of my sermon prep through the end of the week is just like, honing. It's uh, reading it again and again and changing words here. And then for me, it ends up really um, something akin to like a Hollywood script. Like I write out when I'm going to say, um, and I, I write out everything so that when I'm up there, I mean, I could, I can't only imagine preaching from an outline would be terrifying for me. I would assume that almost every week I would have that blood run cold, moment that you, you had where I would forget what I was talking about or where I was going. So I do my last run through late Saturday night rather than early Sunday morning. I like to stay up late rather than wake up early. So I do sort of read through it and hone it for the last time on Saturday night. And I'm, I'm usually 18 to 22 minutes getting a little bit longer than that, a little bit. We, we actually only read uh, two readings in our church service, not all four, partially just for time, which again is something that I'm sure we'll talk about. And also for focus, I'm, I'm not going to try to interpret four readings, much less two. So I'm pretty focused on what the sermon is from. It's usually not even the whole assigned lesson. It'll be from a sentence or a verse, or like I said, even, even a phrase, because it's all about the point is not studying the Bible. That happens, of course. But the point is proclaiming the gospel. I don't know if I draw that, draw that dichotomy. Mm-hmm. Uh, as sharply as you seem to do. I think for me, I would say the, the gospel is always going to be in the text somewhere. And there's always going to be an opportunity to preach the gospel in the text. And, I, and that is, I, I would never want to, uh, I forgot he said this, but you know, you don't want to preach a sermon that a rabbi can preach. Right. You, you gotta have, you've got to show how, whether you're preaching Old Testament or New Testament, whether you're preaching law, a text that's just law or a text that has um, a very clear gospel focus, you, you, the gospel is there. I mean, if, if you're like this last Sunday, we're preaching Deuteronomy 15, which is about, you know, the law about helping uh, some, uh, a brother if he becomes impoverished. And, you know, it, it, on the surface, it looks like it's just law, but that, that's gospel. It's, it's, uh, why do you help, why do you help the brother who's impoverished? Well, because we are impoverished and Christ has 
um, it's top guys. So um, I think I think though, and I, I'm not sure I'd call. I'm not sure you're doing this, or not. But I don't know if I'd call expository preaching a Bible study. I've heard people say so it's a Bible lecture. Sure. Yeah, there is a difference between expository preaching and, and, and a Bible study. I don't. I, when I do, I lead, I lead three to two Bible studies a week plus Christian Ed, um, and I never, I never have a manuscript for that. I just have notes, and I'm going through a text. I'm looking at it verse by verse. I'm just kind of pulling out uh, the meaning of it. Sermons are different. I think. I mean, uh, Martin Lloyd Jones, I think, said this well. Uh, he was one of the best expository preachers ever. He said, "A sermon is logic on fire." Mm. Um, you can have you can have logic, just logic and reason and proposition in a in a in a Bible study or in a, a teaching from the scriptures. But when you're preaching, it's got to be logic on fire. It's got to be it's got to be a not only an exposition or bringing out of the meaning of the text, but an application to the heart and soul and mind of the person who's listening um, in the congregation. And yes, of course, a charge to believe the gospel. Um, and, and usually, it's shot all the way through. Yeah, I guess I'm sort of a hybrid of the two of you, um, you know, being very conciliatory in the middle way uh, <laughs> type guy that I'm in. But because um, I, you know, I, I do, I did inherit from the Lutherans with whom I studied and was really influenced early on um, this idea of proclamation, you know, the sort of, I don't know if it's a hard and fast distinction, but the, you know, the difference between between preaching and teaching, um, the idea of, of proclaiming um, something for you, you know, the great um, um, prote, you know, the, the for you that even Cranmer picks up on in his uh, liturgy, you know, the sort of innovation of the old um, words of um, distribution of the communion, you know, this is the body of Christ given for you, taking in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving that this this personal address idea um, became has become very important. It's not a technique; it's just a um, a way of you know proclaiming to the individual person the promises of God that are contained. As I agree with you, Matt, in somewhere in every text, whether it's the Old Testament or the New or the Psalm, whatever the case may be. And so we have, um, you know, I try to do as much expository sort of Bible teaching as I think necessary to situate the people within uh, the context of what they just heard, but it certainly is not, um, would not stand uh, as, as a, I think, sufficient um, Bible exegesis or, or, or teaching uh, to the extent that I would want it to be. I mean, that's, that's the deficiency, I think, of the, of the short sermon. I think that there's a, there's a limitation there um, because you have to assume um, you know, incredibly wide um, uh, sort of spectrum of biblical literacy on any given Sunday. Um, that's just the nature of at least the churches that I've served in. And so you have to bring some people up to speed very, very quickly. Some people are already very aware of where we are and have been doing their own study throughout the week. And so it's a little bit of a, um, you know, you don't want to belabor the point for those people. And so there's a there's an art form, I think. And, you know, it is a craft, you know, there's a, there's a craft of preaching. And I think um, knowing your congregation, knowing the, the culture that precedes you in the church, and then having a, having a real hope for what you're trying to accomplish is important too. You know, my, my hope is that there is a developing confidence that the Bible is cohesive and perspicuous and, or perspicuous, I think. And we, um, and that it makes sense from the old to the new, and that it all does point to Christ, and that so whatever opportunity I can to to pique people's interest to um, to do further Bible study, which I'm more than happy to offer, and we do have a variety of like Christchurch, we have a 
men's morning Bible study. We do a adult ed on Sundays for, um, we call it the other reading. So whatever passage the, the preacher did not use in his sermon, That's we do cool. a more expository. Uh, and that actually has been very, uh, has been great because we, um, we get 45 minutes there, Matt. And so it's funny, you know, Nick <laughs> and I, get it. <laughs> Nick and I had this experience, uh, in, in Louisville because we have a bunch of wonderful friends at the Southern Baptist seminary. And I remember early on, I was, um, I was saying, well, we have a bunch of our teaching and sermons up online. And I had some friends listen to it. And in the first couple of ones I got responses to, they said, that was a great message you preached. And I was like, oh, thanks. You know, what, what, which one, what'd you like about it? And it turns out they had been listening to the 45 minute adult ed, uh, that I had been offering, not the 14 minute sermon that I, that I, and I said, well, you know, I appreciate that, but that's, that wasn't a sermon. That was just a, uh, an extended uh, Bible study. But but again, there's not a judgment on that. It's that it's that we are actually limited. And I'd be interested to know if y'all had any ways to 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 fix this. You know, we have three services that are you know eight, nine, and eleven plus adult ed, and a forty minute sermon. Um, as much as we would like that, would would really significantly alter the entire Sunday morning landscape. And I'm just not sure. You know, we, we're twenty minutes really seems to be carrying just about as heavy a weight as possible. And I'm not sure that we can do much more than that without, you know, starting another church <laughs> somewhere else. Our main service uh, lasts an hour and a half. So we have a 40-minute okay. sermon, all the music, communion every week. It's a pretty high liturgical service. So it lasts an hour and a half. Our 8 o'clock service, there's no music, so it lasts an hour. And so we, we were, we've been thinking about playing, toying with adding another one. Uh, we were toying with that during COVID just because of some of the regulations about how many people we can have in a building at one time. But I mean, it's, it, yeah, it does make for a longer service. I mean, people uh, have to know coming to, their, to our 1030 service, you're going to be here for a while. And some people, you know, for that reason, show up at, you know, 1045 or whenever, right, right <laughs> before the sermon starts. And then, <laughs> and then they'll... <laughs> Uh, they'll be there for that, but and hang out with us in service. But I don't make any apologies for that. I, I, I think Sunday morning should not be a time when people are thinking, "Oh, how how quickly can I get out of here? I want to get in and out." I'm not, I'm not saying you're saying that, Jake. No, sure, sure. I, hear you. Yeah. But I think I think it should, it's the Lord's day, and so people should come to come to church uh, prepared to to spend some time uh, worshiping and hearing God's word. And, I, and my purpose in this is, I, you know, purpose in preaching as long as I do and and teaching in the way I do or preaching in the way I do, I want there to be proclamation. Absolutely. It's got to be there. But I also want my people when they go home and they're studying the Bible themselves to know how to do it. And, and while we have Christian ed, which we get 20, 30 people there, we have Bible studies all during the week. We get, you know, anywhere from six to 15, depending on the group. And I don't know of any other time during the year, during the week, when we get all the people in the church together on one day where I can be sure for that 40 minutes, I've got the hostages where I want them. And, I'm gonna, yeah. <laughs> and, they're, and so they're going to hear, they're going to hear how they're going to listen. Hopefully, and, and I appreciate I'm teaching them how to read the Bible. I'm teaching them how to find the gospel in the Bible. I'm teaching them where, uh, how to see Christ in the Old Testament, how to see Christ in the New Testament, all those uh, things over the course of, of years of expository preaching, I think, build strength and solidity to a congregation. Um, now, I, go ahead. No, I think I think you're exactly right. I think it, you know, I think there's a, um, you know, there's a there's a, I don't want to say a cost benefit, but I mean there's a there's trade-offs and all these things. Um, but I do think if you can develop a 
um, expectation and a culture where that's the, the norm. I mean, I think that that's a wonderful, it's almost a luxury really, you know, but I think because we would have to move our, well, we'd have to get rid of adult ed or move our second or third service back to noon, yeah. which, you know, again, that would be something that they would just have to, you know, that would be, that would be um, something, you know, but, but I do fight and I do fight the, the idea that I heard from a, and um, back when we were in the Episcopal Church, a, a guy re- recounted to me this this uh, sort of saying that his rector had told him was that, you know, anything more than 12 minutes, no one can pay attention to. And I just reject that out of hand, yeah. uh, particularly given the rise of all of the um, YouTube channels like Joe Rogan and and you look at um, Jocko Willig and uh, Jordan Peterson and all of these long form yeah. podcasts are like hours and hours worth of sustained argument or at least conversation. And somehow people, when they come to church, they're like, well, that's way too, too long, too in-depth, too, too arduous. And I, I just reject that out of hand. Now, I try to make it, I try to still keep it within 20 minutes just for the sake of, of moving the service along. Um, but, you know, I never have gotten pulled off the pulpit when I've gone over 20 minutes. You know, I mean, no one's ever, no one's ever, uh, yeah, exactly. No one's ever said like. You know, um, but, you know, it's a good preacher or, or, or an aware preacher knows you can tell when you're yep. you're you're losing your congregation or when, you know, when the guy in the back starts checking his watch every every 20 seconds, you're like, all right, maybe I'm not as profound as I feel like I as I think I am right now. And so, um, yeah, but I think that, I mean, that's a that's a beautiful vision that you've established there, Matt. And I think it's 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 also an argument for. You know, it's kind of the local church, you know, when you have your your congregation, it's it's prepared, it's it's all together and it's and you probably see the same people every Sunday. You know, you probably don't have a lot of, you know, every other week or every third week type people. And and to be fair, we have less of that in the ACNA than I did than I have seen in previous churches I was a part of. Um, and that's a cultural thing. You know, I mean, the people who have, you know, have had to face like in our diocese, this impending lawsuit that they're still in the middle of. And I had to have all these questions asked about what's important, the buildings and the theology and the Bible and all these things. Well, when you come on the other side of that, turns out you want to keep going, even even in COVID or even when, you know, it's really hot or you could go to the beach, like you'll just go to the beach a little later. And that's and that's been a wonderful gift to me because, you know, there was um, some churches I know, uh, you know, during the summer months, for instance, you know, either strip down their services or shorten them or cut out adult ed or something like that. And we we have made a concerted effort and a real deliberative one, deliberate one to say, listen, um, just because it's hot doesn't mean it's not Sunday. You know, <laughs> so it's like, you know, you can go on vacation. That's fine. Uh, you can go to the beach and watch it on YouTube, but we're going to be here. We're going to still be, um, you know, putting the church. So we do we do the full thing. You know, we do the full adult ed. We have youth. We have children. We have everything, even though it is, to be fair, um, you know, in a place like Charleston area, um, it is harder in the summer because it's it's like the two months out of the year that no one wants to be here. Um, and then the other 10, you know, we're like a vacation destination. So uh, but that's fine, because as I said, when I came on board at, at, um, at Christchurch, I said, you know, I've, I've preached and taught to classes and at congregations as as small as three to five. And I have no problem with that. So if we have, uh, you know, I guess two would be the, the <laughs> me and someone else would be the bare minimum. Uh, but Laz is usually game. So she's uh, so that's that's my built in congregation right there. And of course, with all the babies, all the babies like you have, Matt, like we're, yeah, all, we're all bringing our own, making our own right. workforce. That's right. So 
<laughs> yeah. Well, I know. I mean, when I started uh, right at a seminary, I was trained to preach for 12 minutes and at BTS. And I was trying to teach, preach in a narrative style. I'm not sure if you know what that means, but it's, it's uh, when, you, when you're preaching a narrative sermon, you don't want, you don't want the congregation to hear any of the guts of the work. Oh, right. I didn't you know, know that was a technique. I've noticed that, but I didn't realize yeah. that was actually taught. Yeah. You oh. basically, you basically tell a story about the text. You, you find you, you get the shape of the text, the meaning of the text, and you just, you retell it in a, in a kind of story form. Hmm. Um, and that's how I was trained to do it. I thought I didn't like it, but that's what I was told to do. Um, and I knew I was going to have to learn how to preach again, coming out of seminary. I, 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 this was not going to be the way I was going to want to preach the rest of my life. So I had, to, I knew I was going to figure it out myself. And so I got to Good Shepherd, and <laughs> I remember the interview with the junior warden and the senior warden. The junior warden looks at me and he says, "We were driving actually." He looked, he looked back at me and he said, "I just want you to know, we won't, we don't want anyone here who's going to preach more than twelve minutes." or 15 minutes, however long it was. And they said, can you preach for 12, 15 minutes? And I said, yeah, I can preach for 12, 15 minutes. And then another <laughs> Not that I'm going to, but I can. So it was so, the age I, of I accountability, slowly, apparently, for your right. brain. Well, there was, a, there was a point where I, I did some reading, I did some study, and I finally started, I made the change to expositional preaching. And, and, and I did I slowly begin to build up from like 15 minutes to 20 minutes to 25 to 30. And so by the time we got to the, we lost our lawsuit, I was up to 40 and I would just, I just kind of stayed there. Why um, stop there? Just keep on going. Well, yeah, this yeah. is an interesting thing, actually. So, would you were you at the same time lengthening the number of verses that you were interpreting on each Sunday, or were you just doing more work in the same n- number of verses? I found that when I when I made that switch to expositional preaching, this is behind the comment about I don't see I can preach a good sermon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I should probably caveat that a little bit because I have heard your sermons and they're good. So, um, <laughs> that's what this whole podcast has been about getting Matt Kennedy to say, my sermons are good. They're good. Right. Um, but what I, what I mean is if you're preaching, like when I, when I tried to preach the whole text in lectionary, yeah. Um, and do it expositorily, I was not able to really do a good interpretation of the text. And so I would end up like doing half of it or doing sections of it or, or doing the, the, the punchline of the text. Yeah. Um, so, but, but I wanted to actually have whole pericopes, uh, a pericope is like a, the one you, you, you if you have a, a modern translation Bible, you, the pericope is usually outlined, uh, is really set apart for you by your translators and under subheadings. When you read your Bible, like Jesus feeds a 5,000 and then you'll have a little a section of a paragraph or two. And that's, that's a pericope. So I found that I like to go through a whole pericope at once. And that I think for expository preaching would require requires more than 25 to 30 minutes yeah. if you're going to do a, a careful job of it now if you're again if you're just like if you, what you're doing is different than what i'm doing so i can see how what you're doing is nick is going to be easily done with less time not well easily so yeah without barely an inconvenience right, right, right yeah right, i mean right. the, you know the theological underpinnings uh nick and i have talked about this a lot so we have some similarities that you know, in every section of the Bible, there's, you know, God's two words, you know, law and gospel. I mean, almost without, certainly with every, with every selected lectionary reading, um, there's going to be some, some aspect of that reading that's going to call into question your faith. It's going to bring you up short. It's going to say, did God really say to some degree, you know, did, I mean, you know, fundamentally, did he actually say any of this? You know, like we just did the 
Gerizine Demoniac um, a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, the fundamental question is just the sort of the, the fabulousness of the story about the demon existing one, the demons crying out, being sent into pigs, the pigs throwing themselves to their own death. I mean, it's, it's an amazing account. And so there's just right at the very beginning, this assault on our quote unquote intellect and reason that this couldn't possibly be a true story. And yet there it is. It's the word of God. And so we have the, the law um, working at a variety of levels all the way down to, you know, the fact that this man was not unlike you, um, driven by passions and spirits and, um, you know, outside of his control that had total dominion over him that led him to self-destruction and alienation from himself and others. I mean, there's, you know, there's a variety of ways. So, so getting to the law and sort of laying this out in service of, of bringing people to the question, you know, who then can be saved, essentially, or like when the when Peter was preaching the law to all the on Pentecost, you know, basically just reiterating how you are the ones who killed this man, you know, and their question was, well, well, what should we then do? You know, it's like, well, repent and believe and be baptized and receive forgiveness of your of your sins, you know. So that's sort of the technique, is it however long I don't want to say it's a technique, but but I'm thinking I need to build, I need to spend as much time as possible to get people to say that there's more, they're more worried about this or they're more concerned about the accusation of the law than they than they were when they came in here. And what what could possibly be done to relieve them from this from this body of death, as it were. Um, and then we bring the gospel and say, well, this is how Jesus has, in fact, become sufficient um, and is your savior, you know, not just your friend, your coach, your whatever it is, your ideology. He's your your sacrifice. He's your savior. And so I think, you know, that that doesn't require as much time because it's, it's not a technique as much as it is a, uh, well, a, a sort of a, a theology behind the proclamation that um, that assumes that when we get people to, to with the law um, to let it do its work by just bringing them up um, short, that that will be the preparation for the gospel. And I think, you know, that's why I love Anglicanism. I mean, we've talked about this before, but Cranmer was very much influenced by this theologically. And you can read Ashley Knoll's book to, to, um, called Cranmer's Doctrine of Repentance to get more information about this. But he saw this taking place in the liturgy itself, that this sort of the the threefold sort of fugue of law, sin, sin, law, law, sin, and grace, sort of, you know, the law reveals the sin, the sin causes you to say, well, where can I be saved? And then we bring in the, the mercy of God. And there's this, there's this repetition, even in the liturgy that is that I sort of follow even in my sermon prep, which is that, you know, we're bringing people, um, you know, the unvarnished, unadulterated, um, pure um, sort of proclamation of the law, which um, by the power of the Holy Spirit will bring conviction, hopefully, and then don't leave them there in their sins, as it were, but, but um, you know, proclaim Christ crucified for sinners. And, and then we have the wonderful, in our tradition, of course, you know, opportunity to come and participate in, in his supper. And it's just, you know, I mean, I was, maybe we should make it longer. Now that I'm more <laughs> I talk about it, I'm like, gosh, really got a pretty good thing we got going here. <laughs> Well, it sounds like whatever differences we might have, we all do this basically on our own, whether um, we certainly will avail ourselves of resources, but we don't avail ourselves of sermon prep committees. And um, I will take this opportunity at Matt's direction to tell a little story about how I was um, not quite involved in what it sounds like Ed Litton has going on, Mm -hmm. but um, 
when I lived in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, I was a sermon prep researcher for lack of a better word as part of my job. Um, I worked for a, a very, I think he would have called himself a very minor Christian celebrity at Tully and Chivijan, uh, Billy Graham's grandson, and was at that time tra traveling around doing lots of speaking at conferences, et cetera. And because of that, wanted help doing some of the background work in sermon prep that it sounds like, Matt, you do in the commentaries on Tuesday through Thursday. He was speaking at conferences Tuesday through Thursday, and so he wanted somebody else to do that. Now, as I've just said, that's not really the way that I go about preparing sermons, but in his history as, as a preacher, he had had sermon researchers who would do basically commentary collation and note provision for him so that when he would sit down to write the sermon, which as far as I ever knew, he always did himself. Um, he sort of had his homework had been done for him. Now, when I came there and um, took on that aspect of the job, I told him that that's, that's not a natural sermon preparatory thing for me. That's not generally how I prepare sermons. I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to do that in the way that he was used to. And the arrangement that we worked out was that I would basically just write a sermon that I might preach each week. And he would sort of use that for inspiration. Now, he never once preached my sermon, not one single time. Um, he would occasionally um, use an illustration or something like that, th that I had thought of, but um, certainly his, his sermon that he gave on Sunday morning was always his, but um, I was, I was pretty much writing a sermon that he might listen to online to inspire him to have ideas to write his own sermon. So um, wow. it wasn't a group. I was not part of a group, but I did do, I did do that kind of work. And I could see at that time that he was, he was ministering to the broader church in a way, and he, you know, he's certainly has had um, problems since then, but was having a ministry that did reach a huge number of people, and I felt, I felt okay about helping him in that way. I didn't feel like there was anything untoward about what we were doing, and I never felt plagiarized in any way. Certainly, I was, I was hired to do that work, but he always uh, universally preached his own sermons. So, so the, the prep was like, instead of him going to look at, you know, five commentaries before you got on, before you got on anyway, uh, the, the assistants look at the five commentaries, provide the material for him and he would read it. And then. Right. They were, I think very literal, like research assistants. Yeah. Like okay. a, like a, like a law clerk. In the same way that Malcolm Gladwell has a team of researchers, you know, he doesn't read all of that stuff from the library himself he hires that out they bring him resources and then he uses those resources in the writing of the book i mean i guess yeah i guess i can't i can't see anything unethical about it but uh but it does it for me i guess it would it would just seem i i do think something happens and maybe this is your experience too uh you guys are will ask you but I, there does seem there's something happens in the process of of doing your own research of, of, of getting your own finding your own resources reading them uh thinking them through that i don't know what happened if someone just handed me a pamphlet on thursday and said okay here's all the yeah. all the stuff you got to read through well um, and that was a very different church than any yeah, i have no. served myself i mean he was preaching to a 
thousand right people every Sunday, and I was not aware of all of the inner workings of the church, but they had an entire pastoral care department, and they had an entire adult formation department, and indeed they had an executive pastor. Tolian was basically the preacher. That's right. that was his job. Interesting. Yeah, I don't have. I don't know. I don't know if, if I had my time was that constrained. If I would want to avail myself of something like that, or if I would think that I don't know. I, I mean, I, I probably am not going to have that right. uh, problem. Not a question I'll have to answer. That's right. My, um, but uh, you never know. You never know. But no, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. But I do agree with you, Matt. I think that that part of what I have um, really come to love in the process of preaching is the is the my personal um for lack of a better word uh, spiritual growth or sanctification has certainly been edified by it um because you know i find that over the years you know i began to deepen uh, my my confidence in the scriptures my trust in what actually god will do through faithful proclamation that grows my uh, my just frankly my my awareness of you know the various um, books of the Bible, you know, I mean, deepened in my, in my, uh, have deepened in my life. And I'm very grateful for that. I consider it, I consider it probably the best, I don't know, aspect of the vocation. I know it's technically the job, you know, is that this is the greatest gift that I've been given. It's the opportunity to, to, to be given the resources and the time to study and then digest and then proclaim the word of God is one of the greatest gifts I think that the preacher has. And, yeah, I think if anything, I think what you're describing, Nick, is not something um, it's not something immoral or something untoward. It's just it's a it's a it's a sort of a sad for me to think of being in a in a situation where that was not part of the job built in, whether you were traveling and speaking or not. Um, but again, that's that was a personal decision and, and that's one that was made. But but I would I'd like to think or I wouldn't like to think I know that in the various seasons where I have not been given to preach regularly um, between calls or whatever the case may be, um, have been um, not nearly as fruitful personally in my life as times when I've been given to. And, and I don't, you know, I don't know if that means I'll always have to preach. I mean, I know there are seasons could be, you know, times where I don't know what the future holds, but I know for now I'm grateful for the opportunity and I'm thankful that the, um, the church has provision and resource uh, for me, time and expectation to to do that without without compromise or question. You know, I spent an entire day sitting inside reading um, and writing and no one asked me, you know, what do you do for a living? Because you know, uh-huh. yeah. they expect that to be part of the fruit or, or they expect that to be part of the work that goes into the fruit um, of what we get to produce. I very much consider myself a preacher almost period. I mean, obviously there are other things that I do in the course of performing this vocation, but I do think of that as the primary calling that I personally have. I think of myself as a preacher, even when I'm not in the pulpit on Sunday morning. I mean, I, I stand behind a lectern. I, I don't have a pulpit because we worship in an elementary school cafeteria, but I think of myself as a preacher when I'm having lunch with somebody. I think of myself Amen. as a preacher in all the in when I'm sitting in a hospital bed, I I'm I'm a proclaimer. I'm I've been I've been given good news, and the job description is to pass that on in an intelligible and understandable way to people who are dead, and who need to be raised to new life. I have a question for you, Matt. You're the one of us who at least makes a practice of. Pre- preaching continuously through a 
book of scripture. Do you do that all the time? Are you doing that now? How do you choose a book? Um, do you get through all 66? And um, what's what's your, um, not your defense, because you don't have to d- defend yourself, but, but what do you find especially valuable about that practice? Yeah, that's my normal, normal practice. I, I didn't, I started doing it as a normal way of preaching back, I think it was about a, a 2009, right when we lost our old building and moved to the new one, that's when I made that, that switch. And I think I preached through First Thessalonians first. Um, but, and then in between books, I, we like right now we're, we're in between John, we just finished John. So we're going to pick something up in the fall. So we're doing lectionary until, until we get okay. there. But I think preaching the whole books does two things for, for the preacher. It, it, it means that you spend maybe a year, maybe two years in one book. And I think it does a lot for, for the, the depth of knowledge, the depth of understanding, seeing what God's doing in a certain book, what God's saying um, and each little pericope you come to is informed by uh, your your deeper knowledge of the entire book because you've been studying it for you know however long. By the time you get to chapter three or four, you 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 have you have already a, a, just in your head a greater foundation for that that one pericope. Secondly, I think it really helps the congregation. It, it helps the congregation, I think, in that they get to see scripture as a whole. Uh, they get to see a book as a whole. The lectionary, I think, tends to. And I like lectionary. Don't get me wrong. I'm not no, no problem with lectionary. But if you if you do just lectionary preaching, in my view, you end up with a kind of uh, with many with parishioners with a kind of schizophrenic view of of texts. I think people. I think Christians already have a habit, a bad habit, of going to the, their favorite parts of the Bible and you know reading those and letting those inform their Christian life and not reading consistently and systematically through the whole script through all of the scriptures, and and so. We have, I, I think, probably a lot of people who would be able to rattle off Romans eight twenty eight, and I mean, even the whole chapter of Romans eight. Romans eight, they might have that memorized, but you know what happens in Leviticus fourteen? You know, there's, uh, and and the, and all those are important. You know, these 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 obscure texts that you won't hear in the lectionary are also God's word. They also have power. They also have vitality, and uh, and God uses them to to uh, to deepen your knowledge and faith and love for Christ. Um, I just mentioned Leviticus 14 off the top of my head. I'm not sure if it's in the, I don't think it's in the Sunday lectionary, but you know, that's, that's a text where, where the priest is checking for mold in, <laughs> in, the, in, in the houses. Right. And I can't, I can't imagine a, lection, a, a Sunday lectionary person putting that in there, but what does he do? He go, he hears there's some kind of corruption in the house. He goes, checks it out before he gets there. The person has to clean out the house. Then the priest comes and inspects it has to stay bare for seven days. He comes back a second time. If the mold is spread, the house is torn down. Um, and then in the New Testament, what do you have? You have John, uh, John chapter two, Jesus coming to the temple, cleansing it out, finding corruption there, cleansing it out, coming back at the end of his ministry. It's still corrupt. And he's, that's when he gives his prediction of the temple being, is going to be destroyed. So, you, um, so I don't know, there's, there's nuances that yeah. working through a whole book will enable you to bring out and draw out for your congregation that you that you're just gonna have to miss by necessity during lectionary. But at the uh, same I, time I'm I'm preaching from Amos in a week and a half, you know, because it came up in the lectionary. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how many years it would have been before I would have had the thought to do a sermon series on Amos. Yeah, I mean maybe that's, that's on me. <laughs> right. But okay, you're but you're 
your congregation. You don't have plumb lines hanging all over your house. <laughs> I mean, that's, if you don't, you should. You of all people. Of all people. <laughs> I would argue the same kind of thing happens when you're preaching through a book. So yeah. you're, pre- you're preaching through John. There are Old Testament allusions that undergird the entire text that you have. If you're going to do a good expository sermon, you've got to go back to those. Yeah. Um, and you can't just you can't just leave those untouched. Do you um, make the Old Testament readings that you read in church those readings? Like when you were doing your sermon series on John, how were you choosing Old Testament readings? No, I was I would use lectionary. Okay, and and more often it was odd. It was very and this is this is something interesting. I guess God does when when I'm preaching through a book, invariably one or both of the of the lectionary readings will have some kind of tie in to the. Yeah. It's almost uh, as though there's some all-powerful yeah. being in charge of everything. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no. So, I, I mean, the other problem I found just as a preacher with lectionary preaching is it's frustrating. You know, what two weeks ago, I, during, our, during our, our break between books, I'm preaching. I've made a commitment just to preach through the Old Testament text in the lectionary. So last Sunday, or Sunday before last, was Job um, 30, 38, which starts off, you know, who is this who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge five questioning joe but you know to get there you kind of have to go summarize <laughs> right. chapters one through 38 37 yeah. right? so that's frustrating right if it, so if, and so i did i tried to pack that in to sure. to a sermon on on just 11 verses in chapter 38 but it, you you really have to you really have to preach the whole book mm-hmm. same thing is true i think anytime you you drop into a text you've got to you've got to get the whole book yeah, I think there's like one reading from Esther in the entire lectionary for three years. Yeah, <laughs> but I think I think it's that's a good point. I think you're that's a good illustration of why I think it's difficult to to do both because you know the same argument about the sort of well, like I said before, the perspicuity of scripture, the sort of the way that they that all the books interact. Um, that you can see through a long expository um, series can also be done over a length of time with a lectionary reading. Because, you know, like I said before, my my intent is um, I usually, if there's a connection at all, which there generally is in the lectionary between the old and the new, um, at the very least between the old the old epistle or the gospel, there's some connection between there. And so to draw that out, however briefly, to, to um, show that, you know, this isn't a bunch of disjointed, um, confusing uh, letters written a long time ago. Um, this is actually the living word of God that continues to to both have cohesion and um, power. And so I found that, you know, eventually, if people stick with us uh, for a year or two years, of, you know, going through the lectionary, that there is that same growth of appreciation about how Genesis and, you know, Exodus, Leviticus, you know, the, the Torah in particular, but even the prophets and the Psalms, you know, I'm preaching a Psalm every now and then and show how this was where David was or whoever, um, you know, as we're going through and how that interacts with the various uh, readings and, you know, try to unpack that as best we can, you know, and I think that's, um, that's why I don't know how you feel, Matt, but you obviously you have a lot of other opportunities for Bible study at your church as, as do we, I think that um, there's only so much, even if you had a four hour sermon, there's only so much uh, weight that a sermon can hold. Um, and it holds the appropriate weight, obviously, when it's the proclamation of the gospel, however short or long that may need to be. I mean, Peter's sermon in Acts was, you know, less than five minutes, um, and yet, you know, it was pretty well, effective. <laughs> I, I've had Christians point that out to me before, and I've said, oh, but check out that, which, which verse it is, but, and with many more words, yeah. he exhorted the, 
<laughs> so I say it's probably about an hour, an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, but I think you know I, I'm yeah. I mean, I, I think I've pretty much said everything I can about it. But I I do think that there are there is having come from a tradition growing up that was topical entirely. Um, it was you know we had sermon series on. I, mean, I can't even remember the names anymore, but, you know, they had kind of catchy names and they had, you know, it was like a six weeks on on temptation, you know, or it was 12 weeks on um, relationships in the Bible or something like this, you know, to come out of that into a lectionary world for, I guess that's the one I've been inhabiting now for, for 15 years ordained or, or however long it is we've been, that I have, it has personally made my appreciation of the um the unity of scripture and its sort of cohesive message uh much deeper in my own life and so um i think that's part of the reason why i'm i'm sort of partial to it although i also own martin lloyd jones's um you know 16 volumes on romans um that he preached over you know 50 years however long it took uh so i you know i also appreciate that in my personal devotion and preparation also so you know just like on everything i find myself squarely in the middle neither uh, <laughs> neither hot nor cold you know so there we go that's a good place to wait be. is that a good place yeah <laughs> that's right that's, <laughs> that's what everyone says about me you know yeah. so. <laughs> We've covered a lot of ground. I'm sure we could do uh, more talk about preaching. Um, But before we go and wrap up, J.D., you want to say a a word about this conference you have upcoming? Yeah, well, uh, Matt and um, Ann and Liza and I were asked, uh, and there's going to be a cameo appearance by Nick and I, too, uh, have asked to speak at the uh, conference over Labor Day down in Louisiana uh, as part of the Southeast Foundation, which is a a ministry, sort of a... um, Sort of a regional ministry that uh, was started uh, by a, a man named Bill Fagan uh, about 40 years ago that essentially was kind of a alpha before alpha was was a thing. So it was kind of, um, you know, adult uh, kind of apologetics and discipleship ministry. But anyway, they my father has been involved in the leadership of it now. And um, and he the, the leadership team wanted to get us to come speak. And so the, we're going to be bringing the, 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 the stand firm band getting together in person down <laughs> in Labor Day. So if you want more information, please email us. It's the Southeast Foundation. Um, you can Google it. Labor Day Retreat in Louisiana, uh, Roberts, Louisiana. There's a conference center, the Solomon Conference Center. But I'm excited. I'm excited to see y'all not on Zoom. Uh, I'm excited to um, the weather should be shouldn't be too hot in September in Louisiana and looking forward to the title of the conference is um, hope amidst the storms. Um, We're going to be talking about various ways that we have uh, both uh, personally and pastorally um, helped equip uh, families and people for um, for the defense of the faith and the hope that they have set before them. So we're going to talk about churches and um, family discipleship and marriage resources and relational evangelism and uh, in the midst of it, have a really good time. Uh, so come on if you want. I have a want to see us in person. I know that this is, I know the internet's about to explode with uh, searches for this, but um, <laughs> we'd love to see you. Uh, and love to be with you all. So come on, uh, Labor Day Southeast Foundation Retreat. Come on, come on. That's right. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode of the Stand Firm Podcast. Please pray for your preachers. Pray for us as we prepare sermons that the Holy Spirit would be at work. We know that the Lord promised that his word would accomplish its purposes. We are grateful to be part of that. And um, 
pray for whoever it is you have proclaiming God's good news to you. Um, if you want to keep this conversation going, you can be in touch with us, rate and review the podcast on iTunes. You can send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thank you, as always, to Matt Kennedy and to J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Mm-hmm.